Broadcasting from downtown Toronto, Canada, it's The Medicine Club, a new podcast about medicine, medical innovation, and medical culture. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Samir Grover. I'm Dr. Kashif Perzada. I'm an emergency physician practicing in Toronto. And I'm a gastroenterologist based out of St. Michael's Hospital in downtown Toronto. And we have a very special guest today. Joining us is Dr. Abdu Sharkawi of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Toronto and at Toronto Western Hospital of the University Health Network. Dr. Sharkawi, however, may be better known to you as the calming voice of reason regarding the novel coronavirus pandemic in news media and on social media. Welcome to the Medicine Club, Abdu. Thank you so much for having me, Samir. It's an honor. So I'll, uh, I'll start off by telling you a little bit about how I first met Abdu, and it was related to media and not related to medicine. When we started up the thought process behind the Medicine Club, uh, myself and Vincent Chen, who you'll start to meet inside our vlogs that are coming up, we're talking about the culture of internal medicine, particularly at the University of Toronto. And one of the seminal elements are these rounds that are put on at Christmas time by the residents, primarily video-based segments now, uh, initially to sort of jab a bit of fun at the attendings that were present. And the first ever of these fun rounds that I attended was in uh, the Christmas time of 1999, when up showing on the big screen was Dr. Abdu Sharkawi, who put on these absolutely hilarious performances, notably sticking in my head as the director of something called the ICU Spa Medica, where you would go into the ICU and have all of the services, including breathing, provided to you. And that was a different time, Abdu, wasn't it? Oh, boy. Those are uh, just fantastic memories. Um, and thank God uh, that you were able to preserve them and bring them back those juvenile moments of uh, fleeting humor uh, still resonate very well with me right now. And truthfully, they created a culture of camaraderie and belonging and just a great sense of togetherness that made medicine so much more enjoyable as a resident. I really wish we had the same level of, uh, maybe I want to call it inanity, uh, at this point, unfortunately, political correctness and other things have conspired against it uh, nowadays. But uh, I wish things could return to their earlier state. Now, this was so. This was where media star Abdul Sharkali was first born, of course, <laughs> and now it's gone on to such fantastic things, particularly being sort of the the real voice of sanity and reason and calm uh, during the coronavirus pandemic in Canada. So th- this is this is newfound celebrity for you, Abdul. Yeah, I'm not really exactly sure where this came from, to be quite honest. Uh, My wife will joke that I have an opinion on everything, even when it's unsolicited. Truthfully, very few people should bother listening. This sort of fell in my lap, and I was uh, lucky enough to find myself in a situation that was very central to my area of expertise, uh, something I was very passionate about, wanted to learn more about, and felt a real strong sense of obligation to share anything that I could learn with, you know, my fellow Canadians, with anybody really, uh, to help them cope through this. And I just feel tremendously uh, honored and really grateful that it's worked out in a way that I've been able to reach people, to connect with them, and to have a message resonate with them that helps me, not just helps them cope through all of this. I feel like uh, the more feedback that I get about what I'm doing right helps me understand if I'm coping with things the right way too. So it's been 
really tremendously ful fulfilling as an experience. You were mentioning before that you've gotten some feedback from people with respect to what they've been saying about your media appearances and their opportunity to interact with you. What has some of that feedback been? It's been overwhelming, to be honest with you. Um, I get countless uh, text messages, uh, messages on Twitter, on email, voicemails on my office uh, from people I've never heard of before who live all over the world, who have been incredibly gracious and kind with their compliments about being able to understand more about what's going on, giving them hope, uh, giving them a sense of optimism that this is something that they can manage and hopefully giving them some constructive advice as to how they can cope with this uh, without feeling completely overwhelmed. And there have been other messages or queries about people who actually have specific questions uh, with respect to their risk and what they should do with respect to caring for themselves or family members and being able to help them and having them uh, then return feedback about something being of benefit to them and impacting them in a positive way to me is just incredible. It, uh, you know, it just makes my heart swell and, you know, a few occasions have almost brought me to tears with, with the, you know, degree of kindness and, and uh, outpouring of, of generous compliments that people have shared. It's beyond humbling. Like I, I just could never have imagined this happening and I'm just so grateful. Oh, you certainly made a tremendous difference. I can tell you when, uh, when I told my mom that I knew you, it was like I knew the prime minister. She was, <laughs> she was, she was, it was this degree of celebrity that was incredible. Now, now um, our listeners may not know that um, in addition to being sort of the, uh, uh, the, the tremendous voice uh, nationally with respect to coronavirus, you're a clinician teacher at, uh, at the UHN and are still leading a, it, I'm sure the numbers have come down as they've come across the city, but still a fairly busy infectious disease-based practice, primarily on the inpatients at the hospital, and are still teaching trainees. And amongst the trainees that you've taught along the ways are people like Dr. Suman Chakrabarti and Dr. Isaac Bogosh that have gone on to become other voices that have been available on media and social media with respect to the coronavirus pandemic. What's it like now to be the, uh, the, the senior guy in all of this? Listen, I can't say enough about people like Isaac and Suman and the fact that I've had a, the privilege of working with them, let alone mentoring them or teaching them or supervising them in any way, is just enormous. And uh, I think they are just fantastic ambassadors when it comes to education, when it comes to dissemination of useful information and helping a lot of other people become more knowledgeable and informed about this. So I'm so proud of both of them. Um, and it's sort of ironic and kind of gives me a little bit of a chuckle that, uh, you know, I'm sort of late to this game because uh, they've done such a great job uh, with their uh, media obligations and being in the, uh, you know, public limelight for so long. I'm sort of late to the party, but I'm totally fine with that. And uh, I guess I've taken some cues from them and I've learned from them in terms of how to conduct myself and how to speak uh, to the media. They've given me their own lessons. So they've paid me back. Well, uh, Abdu, uh, celebrity couldn't have found a better person, I think, <laughs> to, to speak on this. Guys, thank you so much again for uh, joining us. Thanks, um, Kashif. More questions of a technical nature. What's your impression? The, the, all the trials have been pretty grim for all of the um, antivirals and um, prophylactic medications. 
Um, what trials are you involved with right now uh, for COVID treatment? And what do you think, what are you holding out hope for? So the trial that I'm more formatively involved in right now, and I'm fairly excited about, is the uh, enriched antibody uh, plasma uh, study, where we are going to get pooled plasma from uh, people who have been confirmed as COVID immune and we are going to investigate the role of that in patients who are COVID positive who have not yet become critically ill. So that's a novel concept. There's been anecdotal reports of this being used in patients in China in particular in those who are already critically ill, but there's been no body of evidence or experience in using this as a strategy for those that have not yet become critically ill. And we're hoping to see that this will prevent them uh, from becoming critically ill and looking at secondary endpoints uh, that are uh, quite uh, extensive beyond that. Um, I'm not personally involved in any other studies right now with respect to either therapeutics or prophylaxis. That sounds really exciting. Like, what have you seen at the stages? Like, how do you know when someone is at the right stage in a, in a COVID infection? Are these people with the ones with minor symptoms or are they the ones that are starting to get hypoxia or the ones in ICU? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think uh, we're trying to find that sort of sweet spot where uh, the patient is neither completely benign in terms of their presentation um, and could be potentially monitored at home, but maybe somebody who's approaching hypoxia, uh, not yet at the point where you're worried that they're going to get to the threshold of needing intubation imminently. So that might be somebody who comes in and is on the medical ward and might need a few liters of supplemental oxygen, hasn't already exhibited signs of serious end organ dysfunction or other complications, and you want to intervene at that point before that quote-unquote cytokine storm is maybe about to unleash um, and you maybe are already behind the eight ball. So I'm excited that maybe that might be the ideal candidate, someone right in that intermediate zone um, before uh, that inflammatory cascade is well underway. Um, and it's sort of anybody's guess as to what interventions are going to help. Is there um, a good short um, supply of these antibodies? Like, um, or are they coming from abroad, from donors? Yeah, thankfully, it seems that there's a pretty good registry that has already been set up, um, mostly here within Canada. Uh, and we've had an excellent uh, coordination of resources and um, logistics between Canadian Blood Services and HEMA Quebec. So uh, they've done a really great job of trying to coordinate efforts to make sure that uh, we're all on the same page and we get uh, everything sort of itemized uh, very uh, carefully and accurately. I don't foresee the need, hopefully, that we were going to require any sort of resources from outside of Canada. Uh, that could change, uh, but I think there are a lot of international trials that are already going on simultaneously. Um, so hopefully we won't uh, overlap too much on top of each other and duplicate each other's efforts unknowingly. What do you make of, um, there was a recent, I think, letter in the New England Journal about uh, remdesivir. Um, it was a, it wasn't, uh, it was a case series, I believe, wasn't, didn't have a control arm. Like, what do you make of investigations surrounding that drug? Yeah, I think we uh, have to be very cautious about interpreting anything that doesn't have a control arm. Um, you know, we're dealing with real world scenarios here where it's very difficult to control a lot. And I think you have to be careful to not 
ignore the fact that there's always going to be some degree of inherent selection bias and there's going to be some other bias uh, that's unavoidable when you know somebody is on a one intervention versus another and there's no control arm. Um, I can't see how you ignore that and then look at uh, soft outcomes um, you know, over a period of a week or a week and a half. And I know this study from the University of Chicago created a lot of buzz. I would say very cautiously, optimistically, let's hear more. Uh, it's certainly something we don't want to turn away from. But going to the extent of saying this is a game changer or this is something we need to start pouring tons of resources into, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just very leery of that. There were so many reports about the same sort of thing happening with the anti-malarials and we know where that has landed us at this point so you know it sounds like a broken record we just simply need more time we need more data and we need more rigorous methods with control arms there's no reason why we can't do it at this point if we were applying standard of care do you um do you see a good role for the um, biologics like actemra um like the anti-il6 agents or maybe even synthetic molecules i think that's a very exciting uh part of research here. Um, and I think what has made COVID-19 so unique and so bizarre is the fact that it's not necessarily immunosuppression or uh, immunoboosting, but really immunomodulation. Finding that spot where you're actually dampening the immune system's response down, but not obliterating it entirely is where we might find the real success point here. And, you know, we all know about tocilizumab having some role here. Um, there's been, you know, drugs that are used for uh, MS and other autoimmune diseases that have been trialed with some limited success. Uh, Fingolimod uh, has been used in parts of, of Europe and has shown some uh, preliminary success. So uh, I think that needs to ex be explored further. Uh, particularly in anybody who might have an autoimmune diathesis, um, this might serve to be a particularly unique benefit uh, to them. Uh, and I'm, I'm still excited about the potential for, for using these uh, in patients who might have early uh, stages of, uh, of a cytokine-type storm happening. I, I, I know that um, you may not be able to comment on this, but... Uh, um, I mean, you see quite a few critically ill patients with uh, COVID-19 at the UHN. Have you considered the use of immunomodulators or uh, remdesivir in these patients? Most certainly. Uh, I think the biggest challenge is uh, identifying the patients in whom you think the benefit is more likely to outweigh the risk. And that may sound very trite, but the reality is there's a big you know, heterogeneity in the types of patients we see in this, in our critical care units. Uh, some of them have been in the hospital and have been intubated for the greater part of three weeks. I think in a lot of those patients, you pro probably missed that window of opportunity to get much of a benefit from anything. Uh, because at that point, I think uh, that it's the lung mechanics uh, that are the biggest challenge in terms of mediating uh, what's the best sort of uh, pressure, ventilation versus something else that's going to be able to you know, reverse that hypoxic deficit that you can't change uh, anymore at that point in time. Um, probably looking at patients that are earlier on in their stage of their critical illness um, who haven't already failed proning for a period of several days 
who might be still amenable to something that's going to change the course of their disease. I think that's the biggest challenge, and we're not really sure where that is. You know, it, it may be somebody who's probably within the first week of their critical illness, frankly, um, and seeing if that's somebody that you can start turning around quickly enough, who has enough reserve, doesn't have a whole boatload of comorbidities that's going to make uh, the likelihood of harm greater than the benefit. I guess um, with an infection like COVID, um, you're dealing with a real cross-specialty infection. You're dealing with you know, immunomodulating effects. There's theories that you know, this, this could all be microthrombosis. So that's you know, hematologists right there. The intensive care doctors have come up with a theory that there's two phenotypes, um, you know, a type L and a type H. You know, this kind of disaster really needs a lot of research, but is there, have you ever seen or is there a precedent for cross-specialty disaster research medicine like this? Well, I mean, you bring up an excellent point, and it brings up the idea that not all pathophysiology is straightforward. And, you know, we've all seen patients in our ICU who have these strange sort of thrombotic microangiopathy spectrum conditions, and all of a sudden you've got nephrology, rheumatology, ID, uh, ICU, and hematology all looking into the same patient. Um, We're not really sure what the basis of it is, and sometimes dialysis helps, and sometimes or, you know, heavy doses of immunosuppression help, but you don't know which one or when or how much. And, you know, maybe that's the closest analog that I can think of. But from, from a, a pathogenic standpoint, in terms of a, a viral pathogen, especially a respiratory pathogen, I've never seen anything like it. It's truly humbling, and I think it really behooves us to be very careful about not leaping to conclusions quickly about what the best protocol is. I think we have to be very open-minded about trying different things, you know, whether that's IVIG, whether that is plasmapheresis on a limited scale, whether it's different forms of immunosuppression. I think everything needs to be considered and we need to accrue that data very thoughtfully. We need to share the results with each other very honestly and disclose as many failures as much as successes before we learn more. Uh, It's fascinating. It's terrifying, unfortunately, at the same time because we're not really sure what we're doing. But I can tell you, I haven't seen anything in my career that has humbled me and has suggested we need so much intense co-collaboration at the same time as this disease has. It's like nothing any of us have ever faced before, definitely. No question. Tell us a little bit about um, what's happening to the non-COVID patients, Abdu. You know, the hospitals have closed down services in terms of ambulatory services. We've told people not to come to the hospital if they've had to, but people are still having acute coronary syndromes. I, I'm in gastroenterology, so people are still having GI bleeds and inflammatory bowel disease flares. What, what's your thought as to what is happening to these patients and what we need to do as we start to reopen services? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I mean, that is... Um a truly sad and unfortunate part of the collateral damage of COVID-19. And, you know, the list is seemingly limitless in terms of all of the other issues that have arisen as a result of whatever you want to call it, societal neglect, forced isolation, um, or in the case of what we're talking about in acute care hospitals and our medical system, uh, the fear of not wanting to overwhelm our capacity. And I think, unfortunately, we've unwittingly or unintentionally 
uh, sent out a message that has reverberated too loudly uh, so that everybody feels that hospitals are, have become cesspools of COVID-19 and have become uh, institutions that can't function because we're running off of our feet, uh, you know, drowning in COVID-19. And I, I think the only uh, way to address that at this point is just to make sure the message gets out there loud and clear through every platform that we can uh, to tell people uh, we're not completely overwhelmed. Uh, we don't want you to come in for trivial or minor complaints, but we absolutely need you to remember that we're still here to serve you, that you should not fear for your life coming into hospital if you suffer from a chronic disease um, of any sort. We want to serve you. We certainly want to help you well before you get worse. And I've seen it firsthand. I have close friends and relatives who've avoided coming to the hospital and they've just had MIs and they've had, you know, quadruple and quintuple bypasses and they're, they don't know what to do with their cardiac rehab, you know, or their wounds aren't healing well enough. And it, you know, it, it, it kind of breaks my heart uh, thinking that people feel that they are uh, neglected or left out in the cold. You know, I would tell everybody, you know, post it on Facebook, post it wherever you can, talk to your friends, you know, do whatever you can to get that message out. Um, we're here for you. We, we, we want you to remember that if we can't deal with it by virtual means, we can deal with it by an in-person meeting. I saw a patient last week uh, for a wound infection because, frankly, I don't trust being able to see what I need to see uh, by virtual means. I talked to Cheryl Rosen, you know, maybe the best dermatologist I know anywhere. And, you know, she brought up that she saw a lesion in a patient that she was very suspicious that it would be a, a malignant melanoma. She rushed to get the patient uh, in, uh, thinking that she'd need uh, them to get a biopsy and to be seen by an oncologist. And it turned out to be a hemorrhagic blister, you know, and, and that's sort of a, an extreme example of saying, you know, there are real limits to what we can do remotely. Um, whatever technology can provide for us. We, we need that organic experience um, of being in front of patients, being able to interact with them, being able to give them the comfort and the reassurance that they need uh, as being real live doctors. That should not disappear. It should not be extinct due to COVID-19. And hopefully we're going to be able to revive that more fully as this pandemic resolves. You know, we were uh, we were listing some of our mentors just before we started recording Herbert Hoping Kong and Jim Kitchens and the people that taught us clinical skills and how the best thing that we remember from them and I'll speak from gastroenterology from like you know, one of the world's greatest therapeutic endoscopists Nora Markon um, the thing that you remember most about these great physicians is that they taught you how to talk to people that they taught you how to empathize with people and they taught you the so-called soft skills in in, uh, in medicine that we're sort of losing quite a bit in uh, in these virtual encounters? Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, they just don't feel organic. The nuance of the body language of being able to pause uh, at the right times and inflect the right tone and being able to respond to a patient's cues to know when they're more anxious or overwhelmed. I mean, that's just evaporated. Uh, you can't simulate that by phone. You can't simulate it by other means. Uh, I'm just holding on to that hope that we're going to be able to get through this. Uh, and that it's going to be transient in nature and all of those great soft skills that you talked about, uh, we got to keep them alive. And we have to remember they're a real big part of uh, the, the therapy and the role we play in connecting ourselves to our patients.
So Abby, tell us a little bit more about uh, the 2001 Michael Douglas, uh, Tim Curry movie, Don't Say a Word. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> well, this is my real claim to fame. Um, well before I managed to uh, find the national spotlight with COVID-19, um, you know, when I was a resident, I, I, I got into trouble on more than one occasion, as many will attest. Uh, but this was one of those occasions where I was kind of proud of what, of what I did. Uh, I think I was an R2 at St. Mike's. No, maybe I was an R3 at that point. And I just finished a very uh, exhausting night on call on medicine, uh, run a code just before ending my shift, and was on my way out of the hospital when I noticed um, all kinds of wires and strange lights and a setup that suggested something was going on with the film crew. And so I ran into one of the members of the crew and I asked out of curiosity uh, what they were filming. And she said, don't say a word. And I said, okay, I won't. Um, and she said, no, I don't know why everybody does that. It's called don't say a word. She said, and I said, is anybody famous in it? She said, sure, it's, it's Michael Douglas. Um, and she said, he's right over there. Uh, so she pointed behind her about 10 or 15 feet. And sure enough, there was Michael Douglas, a lot shorter than I imagined him to be. And on his cell phone, and, and in those days, uh, we had this uh, incredible fear of any cell phones or other mobile devices being able to set off ICDs and to throw people into instant VT. So it was hospital policy that you couldn't use a, a cell phone on the premises. And I was just doing my usual public service and without missing a beat I sort of made a beeline towards Michael Douglas and he put his phone down a minute and looked at me and said I don't have time for any autographs uh, to which I responded without a, any pause and I said sir if you could kindly leave the premises while you're using your, your cellular device it's prohibited within the hospital and uh, he was uh, quite shocked as you can imagine um, and the film crew and everybody else working around him looked at me uh, with equal parts sort of disdain and shock uh, as well. And I sort of shrugged my shoulders, uh, kind of telling them, you know, um, I work there. And so I make the rules right now, not, not them. Um, and I uh, walked out onto Bond Street after that uh, uh, with uh, a great deal of pride that I had managed to kick Michael Douglas out of the hospital. So uh, if you ever see... Don't say a word. You'll see the urban angel insignia on the door uh, during a particular scene. It always gives me a good laugh when I see that. <laughs> it's a, a mic drop moment like no other. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, just a lot of thanks. You know, I think you've injected a lot of sanity into the world and especially needed in times like this. I think all of us uh, watching and, and working with you, it's just uh, so good to see that, um, that you're doing your good work out there. Uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm humbled by, you know, any positive feedback that I get from anyone. And I want to thank both of you guys, because a lot of people don't know um, that people who are not on camera as often as I am do way more than I do and are doing an incredible amount of work uh, selflessly, uh, day and night, uh, towards helping everybody get through this with, with as much information as possible. And uh, I want to thank both of you, especially you, Kash, if uh, I can attest to the enormous amount of work that you've done on your own. I'm really proud of you, and I'm incredibly grateful uh, to call you a colleague and a friend. So keep doing what you're doing and keep spreading uh, 
good energy and good information. Thank you so much. Sharky, we love you. Thanks so much for coming on with us today. Thanks, guys. It was a blast. I hope to see you again soon. Shiro Mukini Ochi Tan